My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today's reading is a famous passage from the Gospel of St. Mark about, about this rich young man. It doesn't explicitly say that he's called the rich man, young man, but from the description we know he was no doubt quite wealthy because of inheritance. Normally you don't get wealthy when you're young other than by inheritance. And uh, this is a beautiful passage for us to meditate now in our prayer because it was variously commented by the fathers and uh, more recently by Pope John Paul II on several occasions. But let us set the stage by simply reading the passage and then dwelling into it and see how it applies to us, that is, in what way you and I might be the young rich man, and in which way is Jesus speaking to us. St. Mark says, as, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit inter- eternal life? Jesus answered him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. You shall honor your father and your mother. He replied and said to him, Teacher, All these I have observed from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You are lacking one thing. Go, sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But that statement, his face fell, and he went away sad. For he had many possessions. He had many possessions, that shows that he was rich. But he went away sad. He was grieving. Jesus looked around him and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. So Jesus again said to them in reply, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to pass through the night of a needle than for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to themselves, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For men it is impossible, but not for God. All things are possible for God. 
Well, this is a, a beautiful passage that has to, in some way, leave its mark on us, on our soul, as we read it, and we can hear our Lord somehow speaking to us. He wasn't only speaking to the rich man, young man, or for that matter, just to the apostles and the disciples. He's speaking to us, too. Indeed, this passage was used several times by Pope John Paul II. He used it uh, in the World Youth Day in 1985. And he wrote like a special letter to the youth called Dilecti Amici, Dear Friends. It's all Dilecti or Beloved Friends. And I still remember in those years when I was studying university in Montreal, somebody had published this this letter in the form of a little pamphlet where there's a picture of the Pope with this massive crowd in front of him. I believe it was taken in Poland. And and we the idea is okay, give this out to as many people as you can. People must read this letter. University students must read it. They have to read it. And the whole letter was based on this account of the rich young man. And and it's a beautiful um, it's a beautiful meditation. Later, later, Pope John Paul II went back to this same passage when he wrote his encyclical letter on the moral teachings of the Church called Veritate Splendor in 19... That was actually earlier, 19... Yeah, I think it was 1993. That's right, it was 1993. I, I mean, I was in Rome, so I should remember that. But uh, I still remember going to a conference on Veritate Splendor in the Gregorian and uh, I personally hadn't read it yet. It had just come out. And, but we were told, yeah, if you want to go to this conference on the moral teaching of the church, go. Yeah, go. It's going to be interesting. And uh, I must say it was well above my head at that point. And uh, I remember, what I do remember is that one of the theologians praised the encyclical and said, by now I have read this encyclical 32 times. And every time I still get something new out of it. And I said, 32 times I haven't even begun to read this. <laughs> so I started to read it after. But I can't say I read it 32 times still, even though that was like 30 years ago almost. But uh, I, I could read it once a year maybe. Then eventually I'll read it that many times, right? But, um, but that was the nature of Pope John Paul II's uh, teaching was always very dense and very rich and always imbued with a deep sense of scripture. And here he talks about this young rich man who was, we can picture him now, well-dressed. Um, you know, There's a number of paintings of this scene of Jesus speaking to this young rich man. And he's always dressed with like a kind of a, a nice hat and a kind of a fur coat and and uh, you know, like a gold necklace of some kind, and but he, he was a good man. You know, he didn't yet have a beard or anything. He was too young for that, right? And uh, he follows the commandments. He he seems to be good and on good solid footing, good education, good manners, and he seems to be really fascinated about this idea of eternal life. And indeed, he he feels that he really depends on Jesus for. A, a significant answer about this. That seems to be the ultimate goal of his life. And he has a very good intention. He has a good intention. He wants, he wants to do the good. He has a, he's a good guy. He doesn't want to do evil. He's got a good intention. Well, in that, 
encyclical letter, or the very Dante Splendor, one of the things Pope John Paul II insists on is that good intention is not enough for the morality of the act to be good. It has to be, it has to be good intention. It has to be a good act in and of itself. And the circumstances around that act have to be good. And he goes and describes in great detail what that means. It was, it was a way of, for him to go against the certain moral relativism that was present at the time. And that, that encyclical letter had a powerful impact and still does today. But this man goes into, well, John Paul II goes into great detail about this man's reaction. And when Pope John Paul II saw him, he had in his mind the young people of his day and the young people today. You and me too. I'm young too, so you know, applies to me too. And, and he wanted us to meditate on this scene. And this young man was, was very concerned about something very fundamental. And what, what is the passage that, that struck Pope John Paul II? Was that when our Lord said, Okay, good. You've lived all the commandments. You've lived them from your youth. You've done good. You've lived a solid life. Now, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the phrase that struck John Paul II is that his countenance fell. He was like, what? What? Are you crazy? <laughs> that's, that's what it meant by his countenance fell, or he became sad. Well, that's a different expression. He came sad, he just went, you know, it's... To me, his countenance fell. He was like excited about hearing something very cool. And then he said, what? He was, as a result, sad. But not just sad at the demands that our Lord was making on him, but perhaps sad at the realization that he himself lacked the generosity that the Lord Jesus was inviting him to have in his life. As though he was missing the train. You know how frustrating it is to miss the train. And you just see it leaving the station. You, know, you, see, you could have been here two minutes earlier and you would have gotten the train. He was not getting on the train. He was not getting on the boat. He could not now embark on that adventure that the Lord was proposing to him. And it's as though our Lord was saying there's no time to waste. There was an urgency about his decision. He could not just put this off. But he had many possessions. And he, in a kind of an instant, in a, in a moment of hesitation, he kind of made the wrong decision. He perhaps calculated, well, that means I don't get this, I don't get that, I don't get this nice food, I don't get this uh, recognition. Probably there was a lot of recognition. He was well-dressed. There was a reason why he was well-dressed, because people would say, oh, hello, Mr. So-and-so. Oh, hello, how are you? And, um, and he was very young, so it kind of, well, it tapped into his sense of pride. And really the only reason he was really sad was because somehow in that moment he acknowledged his own weakness, his own lack of generosity. And there were, there were his own priorities there that he had fixated. And they were not what Jesus had proposed. So in this letter, 
I'll have to read you the letter because I think it's quite touching. The Pope says, There are still other gospel passages in which Jesus of Nazareth meets young people. Particularly evocative are the two raisings from the dead, the daughter of Jairus and the, two, and the son of the widow of Naim. But we can say without hesitation that the conversation mentioned above is the meeting which is the most complete and richest in content. It can also be said that this meeting has a more universal and timeless character. In other words, that in a certain sense it holds good constantly and continually throughout the centuries and generations. Christ speaks in this way to a young person, a boy or a girl. His conversation takes place in different parts of the world, in the midst of different nations, in races and cultures. Each of you in this conversation is potentially the one he will speak to. And I hope you're, you're able to read the gospel like that, that you see that the Lord is speaking to you, that you are that young rich man, and it's up to you to make that decision. And of course, as we just read, Jesus gazed on, on that young man and loved him. And Pope says he, he looked at him and loved him. You know, It's an interesting little just, it's not an aside, but it's just an insertion there. He looked at him. What does it mean to look at him and love him? And Pope John Paul II dwells a bit on this love, this love that Jesus directs specifically at that specific young man. He didn't look down and say, oh, you're useless, I can't do anything for you. I don't have time. You know, It's like some, we might say to the, the guy who's going to clean your windshield at the, at the red light, you know, no, it's okay, it's okay. My, my windshield is fine, you know. And they come and they, they try to clean your windshield, right? No, no, the Lord stared, at, just as he would have stared at, the young, at, the, at a man who was cleaning his windshield. He looked at him, he didn't look at the crowd in general. This was not a vague thing, but it was a penetrating gaze of love. And uh, I, I dare say that that gaze must have melt, made that young man melt. And it gave him like kind of extra time to think about what he was going to say or do. And so the Pope says, My wish for each of you is that you may discover this look of Christ and experience it in all its depth. Well, we ask you now, Lord, to experience that look. Maybe you can experience it here from the tabernacle. Maybe you can experience it by looking at a crucifix. Maybe you can experience it by just looking at an icon of our Lord. Or just as you close your, your, your eyes in prayer and you imagine the Lord looking at you with love. He doesn't look at you as an object. He doesn't look at you as just another number. He looks at you with love. That unique love. The nature of love is that it's very unique. It's not generic. And we have to tap into that gaze. Have you ever actually tried it? Tried this? 
That's why he says, my wish for each of you is that you discover this look of Christ and you experience it in all its depth. I do not know, the Pope says, at what moment in your life, at what moment you are in your life, I think that it will happen when you need it most. Perhaps in suffering, perhaps together with the witness of a pure conscience, as in the case of the young man in the gospel, or perhaps precisely in an opposite situation, together with a sense of guilt, with the remorse of conscience. For Christ looked at Peter too in the hour of his fall when he had three times denied his master. Remember, the three times he was in the courtyard, he said, no, I don't know him, sorry, sorry, I don't know what you're talking about, I don't know him. And then the, the cock crowed, and then, ah, the pain of, of, that seared through his conscience. And then as he realized this, he looked and he could see Jesus looking at him. Well, this wasn't like a look of anger. He wasn't shaking his head. I knew this was going to happen. It was a look of love that would have made and did make Peter melt. He wept. It was the same gaze, but at the same time it was unique. The gaze to the young rich man, the gaze to Peter, well, it was the same eyes, but it was, they were both unique. And everything changes in our life when we become specifically aware of this gaze of love. When we feel bad about ourselves, when we feel down because we're not up to scratch, we haven't really been faithful, we've been maybe lazy, or we've been on Instagram all day and uh, just, you know, scrolling through and just wasting our time and we feel kind of useless. We need we need that look of love. We need it. We need to know that, that we've been loved from all eternity. If we don't know that, if we don't have that, we're missing something essential. It's like being out in the cold without a coat and no shoes. That not only, that, not only we've been loved, but we have been given a mission from all eternity. St. Paul says in the letter to the Ephesians, I've loved you You've been chosen, you've been loved before the foundation of the world. And so Pope John Paul II continues, he says, uh, and perhaps the most powerfully, and most powerfully at the moment of trial, humiliation, persecution, defeat, when our humanity is, as it were, blotted out in the eyes of other people, insulted and trampled upon. At that moment, the awareness that the Father has always loved us in His Son. That Christ always loves each of us. This becomes a solid support for our whole human existence. When everything would make us doubt ourselves, and when the meaning of our life, then this look of Christ, the awareness of that love, that in him has shown itself more powerful than any evil and destruction, this awareness enables us to survive. It's a very powerful way for the Pope to say that, that like just the look of love is what enables us to survive. 
especially when we are down, when we're a bit depressed, when we're discouraged. He says again, my wish for you is that you may experience what the young man in the gospel experienced. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Dilecti amici, that's the letter number seven. Well, I desire that too. I desire to experience that love. Because we are in a very hedonistic society where denying ourselves or, or going against the current or standing out is not, is not very popular. We have to kind of go with the current. And if you don't go with the current, if you don't do what the mainstream says, you're kind of weird, you're kind of outed, you're kind of shamed in some way. And uh, those who stand out and say different opinions from the mainstream hedonistic society are outed. They're, they are somehow abused and, and devoured. I saw this brief video recently where Jordan Peterson is explaining something. I don't remember the, who the guy was. He was explaining this to. And there was a crowd. You couldn't see the crowd, but, but he's talking to this fellow and he says, well, you know the story about the zebras, right? And he goes, the zebras? No, I don't know the story about the zebras. Well, let me tell you about the zebras. Because if you understand this, it will change your life. And the guy says, Oh yeah, what's the story about the zebras? And he says, well, the zebras obviously have those black and white lines, and uh, people have always tried to figure out why do they like what is this with this suit that they're wearing, right? Uh, like, is this camouflage? Like, maybe it's camouflage, yeah, but it's definitely not camouflage against the the gray or the brown you know, fauna that they have in Africa there. I mean, the camouflage is the lion. I mean, you, you know, and then they showed an image of a lion going through the desert or wherever it was, and you could barely see him because of the background, it was like the same color. You know? And then they show the zebra, and it's like, bing, it bounces out, you know, <laughs> white and black lines against the, the brown. I mean, it's just, it's obvious they're there. But, but, the zebras always travel in herds. And so when the ethnologists would study the zebras, they would have like notes to take, and they would watch how this one specific zebra in the herd behaves, and they would look, and then, wait, what was the zebra? Which one was I looking at? And they, they'd look down to, at their notes, and they'd look at, okay, wait a minute, which one was it? Was it number one? Like, when they're in the herd, you cannot distinguish them. They're all part of this herd. And it's very hard to identify that specific zebra in the herd. So, so what did they do? They said, okay, let's find a way to identify them so we don't lose track of that one zebra so we can see how they're behaving and stuff. So they went after the a one specific one and they decided to splotch him with a pink mark on, on the behind, right? And then they could follow him easier, right? And, uh, and yeah, well, what happened? That zebra was devoured by the lions, right? completely because he became identified outside of the herd he stood out but lions when they just see a whole blob of a herd they can't attack that but when they see one they go for it right they devour it they attack and that one zebra that they put a pink splotch on was definitely devoured immediately uh, you know 
And like I was trying to draw, well, what is the meaning of this? What he was trying to say was that if you stand out of the crowd, the lions will go after you, right? The, you're going to be devoured, right? When you're not following the norm, the black and white zebra, right, lines, they're going to identify, like in a society where everybody's supposed to act a certain way, they're going to devour you. And it's interesting that he made that comment quite a few years ago before he became popular, before they started going after him, right, in social media, right? And uh, he was often being attacked precisely because he, he stands out. And, and you and I, for our decisions, because we know we're loved by Christ, we have to be ready to, to do something that is really you know, going to stand out. And really, in the configuration of our vocation, you could say that the most decisive element is the mission to which we've been called the summons by God. And all other decisions depend on that. And that young rich man, he'd been given a mission by Christ. He'd been given a mission. And his entire life depended on that mission, ultimately that, that call. And what often constitutes the trigger, like the trigger that this young man received, the trigger is this encounter with a person with the mission. That, that he thinks, this person thinks that he can fill, that he can fill his life with meaning, with content. So when we realize there, that our life can be a total adventure, and that it will be worthwhile to sell everything that we have, give it to the poor, and follow Christ, that's an adventure. That fills our life with mission. That fills our life with content. That fills our life with meaning. And how does this happen? Because the young man, the young rich man, I don't know, but he may have said no there. But I've always liked to dream that maybe a, a little bit later on, he would have come across Jesus again. Or maybe he would have come across Peter Peter would have said, oh, long time no see, how you been? Eh, not too good. Join us, why don't you get rid of all this stuff? Join us. This time he would have said yes. I mean, this is not documented, I'm just inventing this. But I'd like to dream about that. That this young man still remembered the gaze of Jesus. And, you know, like took up the second opportunity. Maybe when he met Peter or James or John or, or maybe Peter or Jesus himself. And this call that we all receive, everyone, like the rich young man, has to do with the discoveries of what in human life is usually called the time of love, the time of great ideals. That's why the Lord asked this young man, because he was in the time of great ideals. He was in the time of love. His heart was open. It was kind of tender. He was wanting what eternal life was really about. And it's a time now when you're young where you discover your desires for fulfillment. Perhaps their fulfillment is yet to be realized, yet to be accomplished. And it's something that can be recognized and that can only be satisfied by authentic love. 
Not by material well-being, not by success, but by real love. As St. Uzziah says of his own experience, when he talks about his own vocation, he says, I began to sense love. To realize that my heart was asking for something great and that it, it, it be love. I didn't know what God wanted of me, but it was obviously a choice. Come what may. I began to sense love. This is when he had those inklings. Other times of vocation is a, discover of, a discovery of a responsibility of our own ex- existence. We have to be responsible for our own existence. For the world. For history. We have to feel responsible. Pope Francis has insisted on this point in his m- meetings with young people. He says, Dear young people, we did not come into this world to vegetate. Sometimes I think he uses the word to be couch potatoes. We did not come into this world to spend it comfortably, to make life, uh, spend life on a sofa that lulls us to sleep, to be a couch potato. On the contrary, we have come for something else, to leave a mark. Well, this responsibility can be fulfilled in a thousand different ways. And God's call is undoubtedly the fullest response. It is as beautiful as it is demanding. And it, it, it leaves the young heart restless. I want to be responsible. And it's beautiful to see right now, I, have to, I don't know if you could call it beautiful, but in, in Ukraine, a number of civilians, young people that are not, that are not military at all, they're enlisting, they're getting guns, and they're ready to fight for their country. It's as though they feel a sense of responsibility to protect what they have. Young people, men, women. And as a result of that responsibility, we have, you're given a task, a, resp- a mission, precisely this mission that you've been given. And that is what makes your own life beautiful. First love, then responsibility, then, okay, I'm going to do this task, this, this mission, this task, precisely this one. It's not just discovering our own desires. It's discovering a specific mission. Do this. In some ways, with the young rich man, we still haven't discovered what his divine mission was, but, but it had something to do with following Jesus. And uh, there we discover the beauty of the Christian message. And we see this in people like Edith Stein. We see this in Cardinal Newman, where they just dedicate their entire life uh, at his service. This would have been the case, certainly, of, uh, of the young rich man. So we ask this now, Lord, that you help us experience the gaze of your love. And we can say... As we see in scripture, ecce ego guevocastime. Behold, here I am, because you have called me. And I'll embark on that responsibility, I'll embark upon that mission. I recommend you read that letter from 1985, Dilecti Amici, Beloved Friends, just letter of Pope John Paul II to the youth, 1985. It's a beautiful letter, it's, it's a good length, and it goes into detail in this, and we can discover just by reading that, 
the beautiful mission that God has called us to. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you how to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, and my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.